Welcome to the Australian Hiker Podcast, Australia's longest-running hiking podcast downloaded over one million times worldwide and providing you with an Australian perspective on all things hiking. We're your host, Tim and Jill Savage, coming to you from Ngunnawal and Ngambri country. In today's episode, episode 279, we talk with Hannah James about her recent 5,000-kilometre journey down the east coast of Australia, a journey that came to be known as the Long Way South. This is one hell of a story, so strap yourselves in. Before we get into today's episode, if you'd like to help support Australian Hiker and this podcast, there are a couple of ways that you can help us out. Firstly, by subscribing on your podcast host of choice, so that each episode is available as soon as it's published, and if you have the opportunity, leave us a five-star review. Another way to support us is go to the Australian Hiker website at www.australianhiker.com.au and click on the supporters page and buy us a coffee. You can do a one-off donation or become a monthly supporter. All donations are greatly appreciated and help us to continue producing this podcast and blog. Now let's get on to today's episode. Australia has some well-known long-distance trails, but it never ceases to amaze me what some people create when they think outside the box. When hiker Hannah James decided to do the 5,300km national trail to raise money for the Black Dog Institute, part of the way through she decided she didn't want to spend so much time away from the coastline and out of all the amazing national parks along the way. So instead she did a choose-your-own-adventure walk putting together what sounds like an amazing adventure. In this episode, we catch up with Hannah to find out all about her adventure as well as her fundraising efforts. So Hannah, thanks for taking the time to chat with Australian Hiker about this epic journey. Thank you so much for having me, Tim. Now, before we discuss your trip, can you give us a brief introduction to yourself? Yeah, no worries. Uh, So I'm Hannah. I live in Brisbane with my partner, Dan. Um, I work in software and what about what about your hiking history? I mean, you know, just launching into this trip, we're just about to talk about. How did you get there? And yeah, you know, when did you when did you start hiking? And uh, and and what led to the to this trip we were just about to talk about? Yeah, so did some hiking uh, as a child overseas, um, and hadn't done any hiking in Australia until I went down to Tasmania. I did the overland track, um, and then went off into Pine Valley to do the Acropolis mountain range as well. And that's when I really fell in love with hiking in Australia, just realising how varied the the landscapes were. Um, from there, really started getting into through hiking. So went over to Western Australia, did the Bib, did the Heysen Trail in South Australia, you know, lots of uh, climbs to the Glasshouse Mountains here in Queensland and uh, the Great North Walk. Um, I just really fell in love with the, you know, seeing Australia at walking speed. Um, I think people spend a lot of time driving from place to place, but it's incredible what you can find when you slow things down. So that's really what, um, I guess, drew me to, to through hiking and then drew me towards, you know, walking the entire East Coast. Now that begs the question, given all the amazing walks that you have done, how do you manage to get all the time away from work and for that matter, your partner? <laughs> Great question. Um, so yeah, my work was really, um, really good. I sort of approached them about a year out and said, um, you know, I want to go do this walk. And they said, okay, uh, sure. You know, I said, oh, should I put in my resignation? And and they, you know, graciously said, actually, like, do you want to just save up some annual leave? And do you want to purchase some 
and you'll leave and um, you can stay employed while you're away and, um, you know, we'll have some projects waiting for you when you get back. <laughs> um, uh, with my partner, it was a lot more difficult, you know, um, missed him, uh, you know, greatly. But, you know, I was lucky enough that he came out and met me a couple of times on trail. Uh, we got to spend some time together up at Yapoon and then down in Sydney. And he came and met me at the end as well. So thankfully, you know, we've got some great services. Um, like uh, the Garmin inReach. So I was able to send him messages throughout the day. But yeah, it was, it was pretty hard to spend seven months away. Uh, it was really nice to come home. Uh, it's, it, it's always, that's always the, uh, the the issue I tend to have. I've got to uh, build a story in advance of telling my wife this is what I want to do. And uh, uh, yeah, even doing sort of four to five weeks away, is sort of, it's, it's got to be a, a mutual discussion about when and how it's going to happen. So. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, you know, the the it took quite a long time to plan this. So he, you know, he he knew that I was planning to go and do, you know, a, a big hike. So um, you know, he sort of had about two years to to prepare for that. And I think when I, you know, finally said, Okay, yeah, I'm leaving leaving in March next uh, in May next year, it was like, Oh right, okay, yeah, this is actually happening. Now let's talk about your trip which came to be known as the Long Way South. How did you decide that you were going to walk the National Trail, which was formerly known as the Bicentennial National Trail, and what were your goals for this trip? Yeah, so I heard about the Bicentennial National Trail years ago. I believe I was actually in Tasmania on that first through hike when somebody mentioned that it was the longest continuous trail um, in Australia. So I had sort of looked into it and gone, yeah, maybe one day, you know, pipe dream, and sort of really started looking into it uh, a couple of years ago um, and realized that, you know, there'd only been sort of five people that had walked it from end to end. And, you know, initially I was like, God, how cool would it be to be, you know, the first woman to walk it from end to end. But, you know, as I guess some of your listeners will find out, that didn't end up, you know, happening that way. But I, I just really wanted to, you know, challenge myself. I wanted to go to those places that, you know, I hadn't yet been to. I think a lot of people leave their home country as the last place that they travel. And so, you know, they're typically older and they can't get to those like hard to reach places. You know, they can't reach those mountaintops. So why not do it now and do the rest of the world later? Okay. And I believe you're also doing some fundraising as well. Yeah, that's right. I decided that I would, uh, you know, join my love of hiking with uh, raising money for the Black Dog Institute. They're really important to me. I've gone through my own mental health struggles and having lost someone to suicide, I thought that it would be, you know, a great way to get people involved in fundraising and also, you know, chatting with people to, you know, start having those difficult conversations. Um, I always find that walking with someone really encourages, you know, the conversation to flow and you can have those difficult conversations when walking side by side with someone puts you on equal footing. You don't have to make eye contact. And for me, you know, I think uh, the COVID pandemic really, you know, brought into focus the importance of mental health. So really raising money for the Black Dog Institute um, is just so important for me. They're Australia's only, um, you know, medical research uh, institution. So, you know, they're really data-driven and looking at new ways to you know, work with people who have uh, mental health conditions and innovating in that space so for me you know them working on a uh, you know a process where it's you know not a one you know one size 
fits all uh, processes is important to me. Now, it's the end of 2023, and I believe your fundraising page is still active. Is that the case? Yeah, that's correct. So unfortunately, I had to skip a couple uh, sections on my trail due to either you know fires, flooding, um, or um, feral animal control. So I'm going to continue to fill in those little gaps uh, over the coming months, and the fundraising page will be open until then. And we'll go through and put the link to that on the show notes for this website. So if you're interested in helping out and donating to the Black Dog Institute, uh, you'll be able to find the link on the, the show notes. Okay, now a trip of this size, and we are talking a trip over 5,000 kilometres in length, what was your planning process like prior to starting? Yeah, um, so like I said before, it, it did take about two years to plan. I drew all my own digital maps um, and then had spreadsheets on spreadsheets on spreadsheets, uh, planning out, you know, individual days and where to get water, you know, where the nearest town was for resupplies, things like that. So that did take quite a long time to do. But um, yeah, basically just working out, you know, how am I actually going to be able to do this? You know, if there's a day where it's, you know, 1500 metres elevation gain, how far do I realistically want to walk on that day? You know, how much food do I need to carry? How much water do I need to carry? So working all of that out in advance really, you know, help reduce the you know, anxiety on trail of, you know, sort of not really knowing what the day was going to bring. So, yeah, lots of planning. <laughs> um, and then I also made a lot of my own food. So uh, lots of uh, dehydrating of everything that you could possibly dehydrate had a couple failed experiments there but you know uh overall it was all pretty pretty tasty i don't think i'll be eating porridge for the rest of my <laughs> life <laughs> but um yeah you know making sure that i had you know adequate nutrition while i was on trail was was important as well i must um, admit, i must admit i uh, i do love porridge and i didn't you know didn't make overnight oats for a lot of my trips but there comes a time where it's like i've had enough so i don't know how you, how you managed to cope with that for an extended trip like you did yeah i think uh the final morning i took a photo of of my porridge you know just as a like homage to i've eaten this for you know a hundred and something days and i never have to eat it again so yeah there, there definitely was a, a couple points where you know did get quite sick of the food that I was eating after such a long journey. But you know, at the end of the day, it's fuel. So, <laughs> all right, well, well, we'll we'll stay with the subject of food. So, you talked about you made some of your own or de dehydrated some of your own food. What was the 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 resupply option like? Were you mailing boxes ahead of you or picking them up ahead of you, or were you doing a mix of buying from shops? What was the the plan there? Yeah, it was a bit of a mixture. In Far North Queensland, I was pretty limited to sort of what was in towns. Uh, oftentimes, they only had a, a very small general store uh, with very limited supplies. So I had made enough food um, and packed up enough food basically for the entire journey. And those were all in boxes in our living room. Um, and my beautiful partner would uh, get a text message from me saying, okay, post the next box to the next town. And he'd call up either the, the uh, hotel that I was planning to stay at or the post office to see if he could ship it there. Um, and I'd come into town and, and pick it up, go through it. If I, if I needed anything extra, I was normally able to you know, pick that up either at these, you know, the little general stores or uh, sometimes, you know, buying some stuff from the hotel as well, so some fresh fruit and things like that. So, 
yeah, mainly it was posted to me. I was going to say, how how many days of food were you carrying at a time? It really varied. I think the the biggest section was probably eight days, so not a huge amount of food because I was traveling sort of big distances every day. Uh, I sort of could manage to to only have to carry eight days worth of food. I really did try to you know minimize my my pack weight so that I could travel further and you know therefore not have to carry as much food. <laughs> Now, you talked about big distances. Um, what was your average distance, I suppose, over the duration of the trip? And how did you plan out how many kilometres you, you were doing a day? Yeah, so each, uh, the average was around 38, 39 kilometres a day. Um, some days obviously were way bigger than that. I think 50 kilometres was my, my biggest day. Um, and then I had a couple really short days in there as well when it's just, you know, the last hop, skip and jump into town for a beer. Basically, the distances were dictated by where water was. So, you know, you'd sort of plan to to hike to where, you know, there's a river or there's a dam up in far north Queensland. It was, you know, where is there a water tank or a cattle trough that I can drink from? Um, so, you know, but those plans, you know, those, you know, the rivers can sometimes be dry, so you'll carry on walking. But yeah, it really was dictated by where is there water. Even further south in the Alps, you know, I wanted to be close to a water source and not have to carry you know, a heap of water with me, um, you know, up the side of a mountain, um, you know, late in the afternoon. So, yeah. Now, 39 kilometres is an average. I mean, are you, were you used to doing that before this trip or it was just that it was, it was pushing, pushing what you were used to? Yeah, so in uh, previous hikes, I had done some, you know, big kilometres, um, but, you know, typically I was able to sort of take a bit more time each each day so I could walk shorter distances but yeah, this, I think doing, you know, those sorts of distances every single day, um, that was, you know, pretty challenging. But, uh, you know, in getting ready for this uh, hike, I did a lot of, uh, I guess, strength work. So I did a lot of Pilates for my, you know, my core, my back strength, my, you know, lower body strength. Um, it's quite difficult to get into shape to walk you know nearly a marathon with a pack on um, unless you're actually doing it every day so in the beginning I started with some shorter distances so sort of doing 30 to 34 kilometers a day um, which was great because it was so hot and humid up in far north Queensland you know I got to finish the day you know sitting in a in a pool or <laughs> by a river cool down but yeah as I got further south uh, those those distances got easier you know it's just your body gets used to it you get into a really good rhythm now you also mentioned water as well um were you filtering your water yeah a hundred percent filtering my water uh often it was um you know occasionally there was cattle troughs that i was drinking out of so you know definitely filtering my water there um there was also you know rivers that had gone through old gold mining areas um up in far north queensland so I was warned about arsenic being in the water. So, you know, I was really careful about filtering away water. Unfortunately, I did uh, get sick um, a couple of times and uh, I sort of was assumed that it was probably probably from the water. You know, even with filtering, you can sometimes you know pick things up that are on the outside of your water bottle. So I definitely got very, uh, you know, intense about, <laughs> about finding clean water sources and filtering that water. Now, what were you using to filter? Yeah, so uh, in the beginning, I had a grail, um, 
but unfortunately it failed uh, after filtering only 18 litres of water, not the advertised 250 litres of water. So um, I thankfully um, was able to get a lift into Cairns and pick up uh, the Katadin uh, water filters. So they worked great. So it's just the pouch with the water filter um, and you squeeze the pouch to get the water out. Um, comes out pretty clean. Yeah, we we use we use one of those. We've got a, a six hundred mil size one of those that we use to in most cases to filter our water. Um, yeah, uh, the gravity feeds work well for for bigger groups if you're doing bigger water carries. But uh, yeah, it's uh, I've gotten so used to filtering water, even when it looks clear, it may not be so. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, I completely agree. I think you'll often find that the the clearest water, there's probably something upriver, um, you know, a Brumby, for example. Um, and, you know, it's when you least expect it that, that you're going to get something nasty. So, All right. Now, we've talked about water filters. What were, what were the main pieces of gear? So I suppose your, your big three, your tent, your pack, and uh, your sleeping bag. And was there anything else special that you also had on this trip that a normal hiker wouldn't have? Um, so yeah, I guess, yeah, definitely the big three, I guess the only extra pieces of uh, equipment that I bought was a, a drone, um, which I found really useful for checking out, you know, water sources that were off trail. So if I needed to, you know, hike you know, a kilometer off trail, I was able to send my drone up to actually check that the river had water in it. So that was pretty useful. It was also pretty useful to figure out where fires were as well. So I got some great footage too. Um, my uh, pack is a uh, Osprey Lumina, so a 60-litre pack. Um, and, that, and that's one of the, their ultralight packs, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, I mean, it's it's a great pack. I did the, the Heisen with it as well. Um, and it, I think it's just survived this hike. It's very much looking a bit worse for wear. Um, uh, but, yeah, the fact that it was, you know, I was able to carry you know, quite significant weight with it um, and be comfortable it's yeah, pretty perfect pack. My tent is a big Agnes copper spur. Um, it's a two-man tent. I'm uh, one for you know being able to sit up comfortably in my tent and have my pack in there with me. Um, you know, it's spread out a little bit, so that was that was great. And it's needs to um, have a couple repairs done to it, but it's still yeah, definitely one of my favorite tents. In terms of sleeping bags, I used a. Um, a Spark 2 for the northern sections, and then I switched over to a, a Helium 600. Uh, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. For those colder, colder sections, it kept sort of s- snowing in the Alps before I um, before I got there. So I decided to switch out to something much warmer. And are you a tracking pole user as well? A hundred percent. I am unfortunately very uncoordinated and clumsy. So those hiking falls have saved my life <laughs> more times than once. So um, I've got the Compadel Carbon C3s um, and they're great. They've lasted the entire trip and are a really good hiking fall. Time frame, if you know, you're looking at doing those sort of big distances uh, and we're talking about roughly five, over you know, 5,300 odd kilometres roughly, how long did you expect to take this trip and how long did it actually take you to do it? Yeah, so um, I left Cooktown on the 6th of May and I finished in Healesville on the 18th of November. Initially, I planned to finish on October 21st, my birthday. I thought that would be a 
you know, a fun, uh, you know, little party to have, you know, finish this great war, you know, turn 32. Um, but unfortunately, due to some illness and injuries, um, sort of sections being closed off um, due to, you know, fires or aerial shooting, I had to change my plans a little bit um, and ended up finishing uh, a little bit later than expected. Uh, I've still got, you know, a couple hundred Ks left to do sort of near Brisbane and south of Sydney. But those ones, you know, I'm looking forward to sort of smashing those ones out, finishing off my little map that I've drawn. How many days was it all up? So I think in total, uh, including all the, uh, you know, resting and recovering was, uh, I think, 196 days. Um, but it was a hundred about 120 days on trail. Uh, that's 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 still a pretty good pace to be be setting uh, setting to uh, to cover that sort of distance, particularly day in day out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It uh, it it. Some days it you definitely felt every single kilometer that you did. So you had originally planned to walk the national trail or the bicentennial national trail, but this changed. Why was that? You know, after my first sort of thousand kilometers on the trail, I really started to realize that there was just going to be a lot of road walking. And while I was walking through cattle stations, that was totally fine. I didn't, you know, didn't mind it, but I did start ending up on a number of highways. So the Bruce Highway included. Um, so just having to, you know, walk along the side of a highway where there's big road trains going by just really didn't fit in with my goal of, you know, focusing on mental health. You know, this whole journey had been about, you know, raising money for uh, Black Dog Institute and really talking about, you know, the importance of looking out for your mental health. And I realised that, you know, pushing myself to do the trail just because the trail you know, was there, it wasn't serving my own mental health. So um, I decided that uh, I was going to get to Biggenden, so inland from Harvey Bay, and then I was going to go to the coast um, and walk some of those beautiful coastal tracks over there. And I believe that was the pattern as you continued south. You did come back onto the, the national trail from time to time, but you also then went off and, and did other other areas as well? Yeah, that's right. So I jumped back onto the National Trail uh, at the uh, Queensland-New South Wales border and followed that uh, to uh, near Dorigo. And then from there, I jumped into sort of national parks, state forests and sort of zigzagged my way uh, down the uh, east coast um, and then popped out uh, back on the coast again to walk in Mile Lakes National Park down to Newcastle. And then I jumped on the Great North Walk to Sydney. And then from there, sort of zigzagged across the National Trail uh, while I was on the Alpine walking track and then finished the uh, finished on the National Trail again. So following those trails uh, down into Hillsville. I mean, it's, this, this is, I think, I suppose, one of the issues with the National Trail. It, it really was designed as a horse rider's trail uh, even though cyclists and uh, and bushwalkers can do it as well, but as a result, it tends to push you out of the national parks, which don't that's, like horses in them. Um, that's right. Yeah. But and, but as a result of that, it means it also pushes you out of some of the really spectacular scenery as well. It does. It does. Yeah, I started realizing that there was you know beautiful national parks, sort of only thirty kilometers, you know, to either side of me, and here I am walking along a. A major highway so it you know really I that, that's sort of when I decided okay you know what 
I'm going to leave the National Trail. I can come back and do other sections of it that I like, but I want to get back to, you know, real hiking. I want to walk on some single track. I want to, you know, be surrounded by wildlife um, and get away from all these, you know, noisy cars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I can completely understand that. Uh, did, now, did you manage to be able to link uh, or mainly stay on uh, green space, I suppose, or did you have to do some road walking as you cross from one national park to the next? Yeah, there was a bit of road walking between the national parks um, in northern New South Wales. Fortunately, those distances were were pretty small, so that was really really nice. Um, it sort of would maybe be a day's worth of walking between those between those national parks, and typically they were in sort of along management trails or sort of small roads through, um, I guess, big properties. So there was a lot less traffic. But yeah, linking all those national parks up, it was sort of was a bit of a challenge, but tried to minimise the amount of road walking that I would be doing. Yeah, no, completely understandable there. And I think, you know, doing, you know, you mentioned uh, prior to this, you also, you know, went into the Australian Alps walking track and the Great North Walk. And I think, I think being able to pick those sort of areas rather than just bypassing it for the sake of it is, is a good move. Yeah, that's that's right. You know, the, the National Trail offers some alternate routes uh, for people that are on bikes or with horses if they want to, you know, avoid some of the, the mountainous areas. And and those were my my favourite areas. So, you know, Kroombat Tops uh, right up there with all these like big Sydney gums and just spectacular views to Guy Fawkes National Park. I know a lot of the cyclists, you know, you really can't realistically take a bike through that area, but it was, you know, it's a stunning section and, you know, the National Trail is so lucky that, you know, the the National Park allows horses to ride through those areas because you're just following um, the Guy Fawkes River and the Boyd River um, through these incredible canyons and, yeah, so those those sorts of areas, you know, really invigorated me and, you know, made those sections I loved on the National Trail, but, you know, I wanted more of that. So that's basically my plan was from there, I just want to be in these beautiful places surrounded by nature. Now, that, that sort of raises a question in, in regard to planning. Yeah, you'd gone through and spent all this time planning and, and setting out a route, route um, and, and creating your own route. What happens when you say, okay, I'm, I'm going to go off what I originally planned and I'll start going through these national parks? Did you have to do much plan- stop and do much planning there or you just managed to be able to pick up on existing trails that ran through those parks? Yeah, so there was quite a lot of planning involved. Unfortunately, unfortunately, I when I got to Brisbane, I actually got sick. So I had three weeks at home to spend planning before I was given the okay to go back on trail. So I used that time to really, you know, redraw my maps, uh, make sure that I was going to be able to get resupplies because I had then decided to go to sort of more remote areas. I, you know, reached out to people that I knew on the um on the central coast to see if they were able to drive packages out to me on the sides of highways. Um, so really grateful to, you know, my friends and family who came out and met me on trail and bought me food and all sorts of things. Um, so yeah, without them, you know, it just would have been really difficult to sort of have to you know, leave trail, you know, hike or hitch into a town, you know, pray that my resupply had arrived in time for me to to pick it up and then try to get back to the trails. So 
was really lucky to have people who were willing to come out to trail, you know, drive several hours to meet me, bring me my resupplies. Uh, yeah, I think that's always the thing. It's sort of, uh, you, 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 it's okay if you walk past towns every every sort of five, six, ten days sort of thing. But when you, as you say, when you're in a remote area and you've got to carry everything, it, it changes the logistics quite a lot. Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, even saying, you know, I'm doing these big kilometres every day, I'm, I'm actually quite a lazy hiker. I like my pack to be quite quite light. Um, so the less food I have to carry, the, the lighter my pack is. So having a resupply sort of every seven days, uh, five to seven days, made it much easier. Now, you mentioned pack weight there. What What was your typical pack weight throughout the trip? So that's an interesting question. I don't actually know. I believe that my base weight was around uh, seven and a half kilos at the start, so quite light. Um, and But I did have some gear changes along the way. So that weight sort of changed quite a bit. Um, and as I got into colder areas, I was carrying more warm gear with me as well. I think my typical pack weight was probably around 18 kilos full of food um, and water. Uh, as I got further south, water was more available and I didn't have to carry as much. Uh, I think it's a couple of days where I had to carry six and a half liters of water and that still didn't last me <laughs> till, till I got to camp. So that makes for a really heavy pack. I also believe you did a, a, some side trips or a side trip. Now, what was that? Yeah, so I decided when I got to Bigenden that I would head over to Gari and hike the Great Walk over there. Um, my It had been a dream of my parents when we moved to Australia that we would go over and would do the Great Walk at Gari. And they just had never done it. I think they thought the logistics of it were quite difficult. They weren't too sure, you know, where the water was, you know, did you need a, uh, you know, somebody driving a car to carry, you know, supplies to you? And uh, obviously the concern about um, wildlife and how all that worked. So I gave them a call and said, if you guys can make it up and pick me up in Bigenden, uh, I'll take you over to Gari and we can do the Great Walk over there. So it was a lovely break from uh, having to do big kilometres every day. I you know, planned around what their abilities were and we did between sort of 6 and 16 kilometres a day um, along that trail. So taking six days from start to finish um, and stayed in some absolutely gorgeous places. It was just, yeah, one of the highlights of the entire journey, spending that time walking through these beautiful, big old forests um, and you know, seeing all these beautiful lakes. Now, many people may not be familiar with uh, the, the name Gari, and that's actually the indigenous name for what used to be called Fraser Island. It's now been renamed uh, back to its indigenous name again. But I, I know you, you've said the same thing that when you talk to people about Gari, it's sort of you get a blank look on their face. And, that's and, right. And as soon as you say Fraser Island, they know what you're talking about. I think it's a very fitting name. The name means paradise. So it really was paradise. Well, we, we're certainly looking forward to that because we're planning on doing that in 2024. So we'll see how that pans out. So what, what was the actual distance you ended up doing? Yeah, yeah. So I did around 4,700 kilometres. Like I said, there's a couple sections that I unfortunately couldn't do that I'll fill in over uh, the coming months. And that'll take me to just over 5,000 kilometres once I finish those ones up. 
I know with, I know the answer to this is going to vary, but what what is your typical day for a, a trip of that sort of length? Uh, take us through from wake up in the morning to go to bed at night. Yeah, so um, waking up in the morning normally between uh, five and six a.m. Uh, depending on what what uh, the sun is doing and how hot I think the day is going to be. Uh, from there, I sit in my sleeping bag and eat my porridge and uh, drink a uh, caffeine tablet in some water. <laughs> uh, like I said, I'm quite a lazy hiker. I, I normally can't be bothered to boil water in the morning. I think I only did it five times the entire the entire journey. Once I've uh, sort of eaten and had a look at my maps for the day, I then figure out sort of how much water I need to carry to the next water source, uh, pack up all my gear, um, and then head off. In the beginning, I was tra- you know, tracking my day on my watch um, and sort of taking a break every uh, either eight kilometers or two hours of walking, whatever sort of came first. Um, and in the beginning, that you know really served me in, in showing like, okay, yeah, I can make these distances. I, you know, I sort of know roughly how far away camp is. I sort of know roughly uh, you know where the next water source is based on the kilometers that I've done. Uh, sort of towards Sydney, I actually stopped stop tracking everything and just really started enjoying enjoying the hike. I stopped for food pretty regularly. I was pretty hungry most days and would sort of my day really did revolve around uh, you know when I was going to have morning tea and second breakfast 11zs um, until yeah I, I basically would walk all day that can range between you know uh, 12 to I think 16 hours of walking um, and then immediately yeah set up my set up my tent get some water boiling for dinner and I'd fall asleep pretty quickly actually so there wasn't a lot that happened happened in the evenings you know wash my face wash my hands my feet and get to my sleeping bag now, were you doing any night hiking at all or pretty much once you were trying to get to camp and sit up before it became black? Yeah, the, I did do a little bit of night hiking uh, in uh, far north Queensland, um, particularly when it was so hot during the days and the sun, the sun was just you know, heating the bitumen so much that it felt like your legs were boiling. So I'd often sort of find uh, you know, a shady place or a, you know, a creek bed where I could sort of get some get some shade and have a little nap there. I did walk into darkness, um, you know, qu- quite a lot. So most days I walked until it was completely dark. But that's for me, it's not really a worry. Got your head torch on, and you get to see a lot more wildlife. That's that's only awake at night. So your your koalas and some of your little roos. And so for me, you know, walking at night was. Not really a problem. Um, I just walk until I made it to where I wanted to to camp for the night. Did you have much trouble finding campsites, or, were you, or normally, you know, you, as you said, you were looking for water to a great extent? But you know, was there, there typically a nice flat area that you could you could set your tent up in every time you put your uh, your, your, your pack down for the day? Yeah, typically I was able to find somewhere. I could set up my tent, whether it was flat, you know, was pretty questionable. Um, normally, I just looked for places where there wasn't, uh, you know, too many sticks or rocks and things like that. I did camp on the sides of of roads or, you know, in fields and things you know, after jumping some barbed wire fences. But yeah, I mean, 
at the end of the day, when you've said, okay, yeah, this is, this is far enough. It really is just about, you know, am I going to slide to one side of my tent or not? And um, if the slide is minimal, then that's where the tent's going. So uh, yeah, quite a number of times set up in places where, you know, I didn't think I would need to need to camp on the side of a a road, but you know, at at the end of the day, um, home is where the tent is set up. So Were you mainly camping or were you also staying in hotels and a commercial accommodation as well? Yeah, so for the majority of the hike, I I did sleep in my tent. I would only stay in hotels if I was, uh, you know, had gone into a town for a resupply. Typically, I was there for maybe two nights, so I had a day to get my uh, all of my chores done. So cleaning my clothes, repairing gear, picking up food. At looking at the logistics of the next part of the trail. Um, but mostly it was um, in, in my tent. Um, yeah, I didn't stay uh, in sort of accommodation too often. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. I mean, actually, that, that raises a question. How is your, how is your phone signal uh, as you were travelling? I mean, you mentioned you had a, a, a Garmin um, satellite communicator, but do, did you have reasonably good phone signal as you travelled or you had periods where you just had nothing at all? Yeah, it really varied. Um, sort of in the southern states, uh, in Victoria, had really good phone communication, which was awesome. But in Queensland, I think I went for a, a section of about two weeks without any phone signal. So I really did rely on my on my Garmin um, for that. But yeah, it re- it was sort of came in and out. I don't think uh, the ninety percent coverage uh, it must have been in all the the 10 percent where there is no coverage from the majority of the time so it really was quite hidden miss a hard question i know but what were the highlights of this trip oh god ah oh, there's so many i think yeah those those really remote places so guy Fawkes national park we were following those brumby trails and you know seeing deer through the fog in the mornings just having that that beautiful crystal clear river that I crossed, you know, 40 times a day. That was, you know, definitely a highlight. I made a side trip up into Barrington Tops and, you know, again, really quite remote. All the four-wheel drive tracks were still closed at the time that I was up there. So I really had the place to myself, all these, you know, beautiful waterfalls, these um, Antarctic beach forests, these huge uh, tree ferns as well. Absolutely stunning. And then obviously that the Alpine walking track, and it's really my first time um, in the Alps, uh, hiking in the Alps. And yeah, I don't think I've ever said wow so many times. I think it was, yeah, every day I was excited to get up and, and hike. It didn't matter if there was, you know, I was following management trail, I was following, you know, just my compass and looking for, for, uh, looking for other people's tracks through the forest. It was just spectacular up there. I think you can become pretty blasé about seeing things that you know saw, saw that yesterday or saw that the day before. But I think it's it's good to be able to be amazed and to really enjoy something, even if you've seen it before. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think you know it didn't matter how many you know uh, eastern grey roos I had seen. Every time I saw another one, I was like, oh, wow, this is this is spectacular. You know, didn't matter how many sunrises or sunsets I'd seen every time there was a, you know, particularly good one, it, you know, you'd stop and you'd stand and you'd watch it until, you know, 
sort of finish. So yeah, it. I just think, you know, how lucky am I to to be able to see all this stuff um, in my own backyard? Yeah, no, I think that's always the, always the way. Now, with the trip of this magnitude, there's always going to be things that don't go to plan. So what didn't go well on this trip? Oh, yeah. Um, I think, you know, the first major stressor was uh, my my grail water filter failing. That was pretty stressful. I was, you know, in, in an area where I definitely needed to have good water filtration. Um, so that was sort of the first the first hiccup where I went, oh, God, things are potentially going to going to go wrong um and then uh yeah had a couple injuries couple uh periods where I, I did get sick uh thankfully um I you know was in Brisbane one of those times um and then uh getting into Sydney realizing that I had uh you know damaged my ITB and that I had tendonitis in my knees um you know realizing god this may be the end you know i might not be able to continue those sorts of moments really you know set your heart pounding and you know questioning what you've done to yourself i think working around all those sort of uh i guess natural uh disasters you know there was quite a lot of fires burning so making uh sure that you know i was safe that my partner knew where i was that you know he was great and had had called up you know rural fire brigades to check you know what the conditions of the fires were but yeah really um just every day was you know what <laughs> you know we're going to stick to the plan but if the plan falls apart then we'll you know do it, do the best that we can so um i think a trail of that size if everything had gone perfectly i, I would have been questioning you know what gods were looking out for me <laughs> Now, you also mentioned uh, pigs uh, when we when we first talked. Well, well, tell us a bit about those. Yeah, that's right. I had quite a lot of run-ins with uh, feral pigs. Uh, it's sort of started on day three of of the trail in the in the Daintree. I've uh, went to go and hike up to Roaring Meg, and on my way back down the trail, um, there was a you know massive boar there, and it absolutely scared me. So. Um, yeah, it was between me and where I'd left my pack, so I didn't have anything on me. Very rookie error. I never made that mistake ever again. Um, thankfully, I was able to sort of scare it off and sprint down the trail and get get the hell out of Dodge. Um, but yeah, lots of run-ins with uh, feral pigs, especially in uh, the uh, Oxley Wild Rivers National Park. I think saw about 40 a day. And, you know, they're typically around those creeks where you're wanting to get your water or a creek crossing and they're, they're not afraid of me at all. Um, so spent a lot of time sort of standing there clapping and shouting and you know, throwing rocks and trying to get them to move on. And eventually I did spend, you know, probably, you know, 10 hours total just sitting there waiting for le- for pigs to leave the area uh, before I could carry on. So they're definitely not my uh, favourite creatures. <laughs> I think that's always the, the issue, isn't it? I mean, you know, feral animals need water as well. And if there's that limited water supply, they're going to be using the same supplies as you are. Yeah, 100%, 100%. I think just making sure that uh, they know you're in the area is one of the most important things. You never want to sort of spook one of those uh, those big pigs or even the brumbies walking around, you know, clapping and calling out high horse probably feels pretty stupid, but if it's going to you know, keep you safe, then that's what you have to do. Now, did you, you mentioned the, the water filter, but did you have any other epic gear fouls on this trip? Not too many 
failures. I did uh, have to replace my my bedroll, um, my mattress. It it ended up with so many punctures in it that it was more patches than actual mattress by the end of it. So when I got into Newcastle, I switched it out for a new one. Fortunately, I sort of had gotten a bit tired of waking up every two hours on the ground and having to reinflate it. So I switched over to something that was a little bit heavier, uh, but a little bit more durable. So, and that lasted me till the end. I think the only other real issues was um, due to the fact that I lost quite a bit of weight. My pack didn't fit properly anymore. So that was quite difficult. I couldn't tighten the, the waistband any further. So it did sit on my hip bones, um, which was quite painful. Uh, having to sort of carry the, you know that that pack right on my hip bones um, for the last sort of month and a bit of the journey. Now that raises a, a, another question. You know, after walking nearly five thousand kilometres, what impacts did this walk have on your body, both positive and negative? Yeah, um, I guess I was in the best shape of my life. I was, uh, you know, unbelievably fit and sleeping really well. Uh, but I say, so yeah, I was I was hungry all the time I became quite quite obsessive about food you know if I'd managed to get a hold of uh some phone signal and called my partner our fridge makes a little plays a little song when you open it and I'd quickly ask him you know oh my god what are you eating what what snacks are you having um you know living vicariously that way through through his snack choices um I did lose quite a lot of weight um I think around 11 kilos but uh you know put on a lot, a lot of muscle which was great um and unfortunately you know after you know doing that many kilometers that that much you know uh elevation gain and also the the dreaded downhills um yeah my knees definitely were shot by the end of it but you know in saying that you know you I'm just amazed at you know what my body was able to do and how much it put up with. So tell me, did you uh, you've been back home for what is it now? Just on a month, is it roughly? Yeah, that's right. Uh, just about a month. Have you put some, put some or all of the weight back on again? Or <laughs> no, I think I put on about about two kilos, which is which is kind of nice. It was uh, pretty uncomfortable having you know your hip bones and your spine sticking out every time I'd sit down in a chair you'd be like oh god this isn't this isn't as comfortable as it used to be um but no I've uh have been quite the couch potato since since coming home and it's been really good to have uh you know huge amounts of food for Christmas. <laughs> With any trip like this you were in a lot of remote areas for quite a while but you were also coming across uh, people in more populous areas what were your interactions with the people like along the trail? Yeah, honestly, this trail was made by the people that I met along the way. You know, in doing other through hikes, you sort of meet people here and there. You know, you camp with people for a night who are also, you know, hiking as well. But on this hike, I traveled through a lot of private property, so a lot of cattle stations. And then, you know, even further south, you know, you're meeting people while you're walking who, you know, everybody was so kind. I, I couldn't believe you know the kindness that was extended towards me you know people invited me into their homes they fed me they gave me a bed to sleep in they let me take a shower it was probably more for their benefit than mine I'm not too <laughs> sure if they wanted me to sit at their dinner table smelling the way that I did but people were just so unbelievably kind the number of people that you know pulled over to check that I was okay you know you get um, you know people driving by on hiking trails um heading off to their campsites and uh 
they, you know, hand, hand your beer out the window and tell you you're doing a good job. You know, those sorts of things really, you know, invigorated you. They, they really made the day. And I guess, you know, also, you know, I've been able to meet a lot of other people who are doing, you know, a lot of work within the mental health space as well. So a couple of incredible people up in uh, Gladstone area who have started walking groups um, who uh, you know, really have a focus on being active and the positive impacts that that can have on mental health. So I've really built this beautiful tribe around me of people who were just so willing to help me um, and, you know, really made, uh, you know, I couldn't have done this journey without them. We talked about gear previously and a question that most people want to know is what footwear were you wearing on this hike? Yeah, so I actually uh, switched out traditional hiking boots for this journey and uh, started with uh, some trail runners. So I went through uh, quite a few pairs. Uh, in the beginning, I was wearing some hokas um, and they were, you know, it was like walking on clouds. They, they were really, really great. But I think our uh, rough Queensland roads sort of shredded them quite a bit. I then changed over to some topos, which I think i very near my my favorite trail runners they're really lightweight really sturdy they've got great grip um and then as i headed into the mountains i switched over to some ultras so i really did have you know quite a lot of variety in my footwear i do have to say i did hike a couple days in my crocs um which i'm not too sure if that counts as, as a hiking footwear but uh yeah they were they they worked for for those two days was that because you, your shoes had died or you just, it would, you just felt like doing it? Yeah, I uh, so had about 40 river crossings to do a day and uh, after sort of the first day where I really, you know, tried to keep my, my uh, footwear dry, I just realised, oh, well, if I'm walking in the river, I'll just, I'll just wear my Crocs. That'll be, that'll be fine. But, yeah, they worked pretty well. Um, I think my, my feet were sort of, they held out, you know, all right, um, and they were definitely less, you know, soggy and wrinkled at the end of the day uh, compared to, you know, wearing uh, wet trail runners all day. <laughs> now, just, just listening to what you've gone through and talked to there, that raises a, a couple of other questions. Uh, many snake interactions at all? To be honest, I thought I would have more. I've, I probably only saw about 10 snakes total the entire time. There was probably more. I just didn't see them. Um, <laughs> Up in far north Queensland, came across a couple of taipans, um, and then further south, uh, I saw a number of really beautiful pythons, um, and then really didn't see too many snakes until I got into the Alps. Um, typically, that it was in the morning, um, and they were just curled up uh, off to the side of the trail, um, and they weren't weren't you know too bothersome. Um, the, their reactions were were quite slow and quite funny to sort of watch as you you know spoken to them and said hey i'm just going to walk past you just you know, chill there and as you walk past them about 10 seconds later you've got the the reaction and they've sort of moved off quite quickly into the bush but a lot less snakes than i thought i would see for this sort of distance and the amount of days you're doing i, I must admit i i love hiking solo i love being by myself even for long periods but a lot of people don't tend to like that. They need the human inter interaction. How did you find spending so much time within your own head? Yeah, um, I actually love it. I love hiking solo. I think, you know, when I first started doing it, I, I, was, I was young, I was in my early 20s, and I found it really difficult then because I had to spend so much time with myself um, and I hadn't had to do that before. Um, and then over time, I really started 
falling in love with with the amount of time you get to spend, you know, examining, you know, thoughts, <laughs> like thinking about things that you haven't thought about. Um, I'd often find my mind would just go completely blank. Um, so <laughs> I'd sort of realize like, oh, several kilometers have passed and I don't even, can't even remember what I was thinking about. So it's sort of really a meditative state that you go into. But yeah, I, I did spend quite a bit of time listening to podcasts, uh, Australian hiker included, and you know, occasionally I'd listen to music. But oftentimes there was so much stuff happening on trail. You know, there's so much bird life, insect life, there's you know, beautiful orchids to be found. There was, you know, interesting things around you that you know you don't find yourself, you know, feeling bored or feeling the need for, you know, be on your phone or anything like that, or for you know a human interaction. Um, but you know, again, like I said before, I was very blessed that I had you know friends and family come and meet me out on trail, so I did have that that interaction um, pretty regularly. What advice would you give to people looking to undertake an epic journey of this magnitude? Planning. Planning is so important. Um, you know, making sure that you know uh, where you want to be at the end of each day, making sure that you know, you know, sort of what the terrain is going to be like. Um, I think for, for myself, you know, I didn't uh, do a heap of hiking training. I looked at, you know, other areas of my body that I needed to strengthen to to be able to facilitate this hike, you know, make sure that you've tried all of your meals before you pack them up into boxes. <laughs> make sure that you're, you know, you're happy eating only Mars bars for a hundred and something days, uh, whether or not you'd like a different variety of chocolate. Yeah, you know, researching your gear, making sure that the gear fits you. You know, there's people who are you know, really um, loyal to particular brands. I'm, you know, loyal to particular gear. If my gear is, you know, working for me, um, then that's the gear that I'm going to bring. So finding what works for you and also listening to your body, you know, um, I guess, you know, for people who are, who are, you know, planning this or they're, you know, they're already on a, you know, big through hike, listening to when your body is saying, hey, you know what, I've had enough, like I'm tired, I want to take a break right now, even if you haven't reached that, you know, arbitrary distance or amount of hours hiking that you've said you would. If you have the opportunity to stop somewhere, um, take a break, you know, have, you know, have a snack that always helps your mood, um, then, you know, really like tuning in, listening to your body um, and, you know, doing what it's telling you to do. Okay. So one final question, what's your next planned hiking adventure? Yeah, so I actually don't have a hiking adventure planned next, uh, aside from filling in the sections that I've missed. So uh, doing the coastal walk south of Sydney um, and doing some of the other great walks in, in Queensland to link up those little dots that I have on my map. I'm actually heading off uh, on a sailing adventure next. So a little bit different, uh, maybe give my legs a little bit of a break, but I'll be sailing to Antarctica next year. Yeah, with my with my parents, yeah. That sounds pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Should be pretty incredible. Okay, so we've been talking with Hannah James about an amazing journey along the East Coast, better known as the Long Way South. Hannah, thanks for taking the time to talk with me and to share this amazing journey with our listeners. Thank you so much, Tim. So that was our interview with Hannah James on her journey named The Long Way South. 
Uh, and for me, this has a particular interest in that I would like to do something similar at some stage in the future. Uh, whether I do or not is a different thing, but it, it's certainly there in my mind. One thing I found really interesting about this was it started off being a walk on the National Trail, formerly the Bicentennial National Trail, and very quickly became, or a thousand kilometres in, became a choose-your-own-adventure uh, because she found that it was a lot of highway walking and in all honesty the National Trail was designed first and foremost as a horse riding trail. So as a result it tended to bypass a lot of uh, national parks that don't allow horses into them. But also it, the terrain of different parts of the country that would be perhaps a little bit more difficult for horses. So some of those you know narrow single tracks and so on. Th- this is an amazing uh, journey. I have... So many thoughts and so many questions. <laughs> it's like, um, but so impressive for you know anybody, particularly somebody doing it solo, to to have achieved. As part of this trip, Anna was also raising money for the Black Dog Institute, which is uh, based around mental health. And as I mentioned, there's a link in the show notes. So the so the funding page is still open. So if you'd like to help out with that and donate, the uh, the links are there for you to go through and do that as well. It's one of these sort of things where you either do a trip just for the sake of it and that's it, or you do a trip and you also promote or support something else. And, you know, the choice is really yours. I think there's so many people these days that are doing longer trips and doing it as fundraisers. Uh, but certainly, you know, if you're going to be going through and doing a trip and you've got the opportunity, why not? As Hannah mentioned, we did discuss how many kilometres she'd gone through and done on this trip. And and originally it was going to be the Bicentennial National Trail, which is just a tiny bit over 5,300 kilometres. And that was certainly her intent, is to cover roughly that sort of distance. But due to uh, fires uh, in, in part of the trail and also due to aerial shooting of feral animals that really pushed her off trail. Now, Sometimes you might be able to get around that and sometimes not. But when you're doing a trip of this magnitude, it's really hard to take the purest attitude and say, I'm only going to do what I've planned and nothing else. I think realistically, you've, you've got to come prepared for alternate options. And sometimes you don't get much warning on them as well. Yeah, she certainly ha- had to make some changes along the way. And and I, I guess that's one of those other aspects about this that she took it in her stride and and was very um, flexible, I uh, I guess, uh, was thinking ahead and then there was a hell of a lot of planning that had gone into this and I do have to say that, you know, her partner was the, you know, great silent support. Um, <laughs> I'm not so sure how silent but, uh, you know, you can't do these things without you know, the people around you and, and um, the contribution that they make. So, you know, kudos to him for for being there and supporting her along the way. Now, I don't know if we'd actually made the cut for this episode, but one of the comments or one of the discussions I had with Anna was she was saying that because communication was to do with uh, using a Garmin inReach, which means you're sending text messages, and in most cases, she, she was saying that by the time she sent them, it was received and then a response was provided back and she received it was normally about a 15-minute turnaround. 
And she was actually saying to me that at one point she had a bit of an argument with a partner, which is very hard when you're having 15 <laughs> intervals for, for a response. There wasn't a lot of a, um, fury in that, was there? <laughs> you have to calm down within that 15 minutes, I'm sure. Uh, but that was to do with that when the fires were going on and she, she needed to be able to know whether she needed to bypass or get out of there and which way she needed to go. But that's the, that's the one drawback with satellite. It doesn't matter how good it is, there's always a lag time. Uh, so even if it's only five or six minutes, there's always that lag time there. And what a great use of her drone, though. I mean, you know, that was great thinking to, to have a drone um, with you to make sure that you know, when you were going to step off the trail to find water, that you weren't going to get there and discover there was no water. That, you know, it was a great way to monitor the the fire activity in an area and so on. So, you know, that's new technology. Oh, it's not so new now, I guess, but technology that's adding quite a big, important dimension to hiking, but particularly long-distance hiking. And I must admit, I hadn't thought about putting it to this sort of use. You know, you think, okay, I can see a uh, a stock water trough. Uh, you know, it's seven or eight hundred meters across the paddock. I need water. I'll, I'll go and get some, and you get and I need to get there and find out it's empty. Being able to being able to put up a drone, shoot the drone across without scaring the stock, obviously having a look to see what's in there and coming back to say, yep, it's it's something that's worthwhile going through and visiting. Or the same with rivers, as some of the rivers are dry, being able to put a drone up and go and travel that sort of distance before you make the effort of going there. Yeah, a bit difficult, I guess, in the national parks, given that you can't uh, have your, your dr- drone in action in the national parks, but any other place. And there was certainly uh, – there's a lot of distance between – <laughs> Cook Cooktown and Hillsville yeah. to be able to fly a drone, that's for sure. One thing you would have heard uh, a, a number of times throughout the recording with Hannah was her relationship with food. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, I, and she used the term elevensies, which I haven't heard for so long. You know, it's, it's a bit like uh, uh, lunch and little lunch and, you know, uh, late lunch and then, you know, you, you end up with having four or five meals where most people will have breakfast, lunch and dinner with maybe a couple of small stacks. You know, she was saying she lost 11 kilos over the duration of the trip. That's a lot of weight, isn't it? It is a lot of weight and it's, it's interesting. It's, um, it's very much a biological sort of thing. Women do lose weight but they tend to lose it at a slower pace, they're more efficient with their food use and their, their food storage. You know, a man trying to do exactly the same thing probably would have lost twice that and looked like a scarecrow at the end of it. So I think it's um, it's the sort of thing that, you know, she was saying that uh, she got sick of porridge by the end of it. And I, I have found that over the years that uh, I love uh, having overnight oats uh, in the mornings, but you get to a stage where you think, no, I've had enough now. Uh, and you just need to change over something else. But when you're on trail for roughly 120-odd days, uh, you're going to get sick of having the same thing over and over again, even though you need food to keep you going. Uh, But you've got to make sure that you consider what you're taking with you, that you provide variety, and maybe go off it for a a particular food for a, a couple of weeks and then come back onto it again when you've had a bit of a break from it. But it's a very hard thing to do and, you know, when you're burning the amount of calories you probably would be uh, in that sort of situation. In my case, if I was doing 39 kilometres a day, I'd be burning five to 8,000 calories a day 
and uh, trying to get the, the calories in is really difficult. Yeah, you just can't carry um, that much food in a calorie sense. Uh, but what was interesting for me was, you know, her diet must have been still pretty good given uh, she was able to maintain muscle and build muscle. Um, so, you know, it wasn't wasting away. So she was she was doing some really good things in a nutritional sense um, for that to happen. One thing that really did surprise me, and I know Hannah's a bit younger than we are. Um, but <laughs> that would be a lot younger. Yeah, doing 38 to 39 kilometres a day average. Uh, now, she did say she started off a bit slower than that and built up to it. I must Not have, much slower. Uh, no, <laughs> she I was talking she, about 30 to 34. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know if I could maintain that sort of pace, not without having a giving a fully supported hike. And I suppose it's interesting. It's a, it is a big distance. There is no argument on that. But when you think she was walking for 12 to 16 hours a day, uh, that's really three and a half kilometres at the highest. As a, as a pace is concerned, it's not that much. But physically being able to maintain and keep on walking, even at a slower pace for that length of time, you know, you've got to, you've got to, as she said towards the end of the episode, listen to your body and do what your body needs. Don't push yeah. it for the sake of it. Yeah. And there were times, um, particularly uh, when water was scarce or in the heat, that she was carrying a lot of water. So she would have had, you know, extra weight and still averaging those kilometres. You know, that's a that's a pretty big effort. And, uh, you know, for that alone, <laughs> uh, she should be congratulated. I must admit, I uh, yeah, certainly if I was looking at doing a trip like that, I, I, I'd try and carry as little weight as I possibly could. But I'd, I'd certainly be looking to see what I could strip out because – the less weight you're carrying of these sort of distances makes a huge difference. It's interesting she talked about using about five pairs of shoes over that sort of distance, and that's pretty good. Yeah, and it, and almost every brand of trail runner there. So, so that's a good test out, hey? <laughs> it, it is, and I think uh, she mentioned her favourites were the Topos, and I must admit, if I can get hold of them, I do love the Topo shoes. They are very durable, and they will get that 1,000 to 1,200 kilometre sort of range and they cope with really hard conditions. But in my case, size 15s, hard to pick up. And, you know, you really do need to pick whatever it is that's right for you and, and stay with it where you can, or be willing to change if you all of a sudden can't find things. Uh, but I think in my case, if I was going to be doing something like that, I'd do the training and do the effort beforehand, work out exactly what shoe's going to work for me and buy five or six pairs and get them mailed through at the same time as the, the food went as well. Though, though Hannah did say that the terrain was different and the conditions were different. So, you know, being adaptable I think probably was important and being able to read what I needed next uh, would have been important too and um, – you know, having decided five pairs prior to your start probably didn't quite meet that flexibility. No, and you know, as you said, the, the northern Queensland rows with the heat were really, really killing the shoes first up. You know, I've used the uh, the hawkers and they perform really well, but obviously don't like that particular type of condition. So, um, yeah, you may you may not get as many kilometres in the in the the first part of the trip in the, in the northern Australia area and, and get more uh, later down south. Now I've never never understood the fascination with Crocs. 
<laughs> but to to hear her having worn them for a few days through rivers and river crossings and so on, uh, it's a pretty pretty flexible. Uh, people say they're comfortable. I'm going to have to find that out now. Yeah, it was interesting. You know, you think, okay, well, why would you bother? But you know, doing anything up to forty river crossings a day. Uh, as you cross backwards and forwards over the same river, you know, you're going to have wet feet for multiple days and that's probably not a bad way to go. Yeah, or you're going to spend your time taking your shoes off and walking and then putting them back on again. And, yeah, so that's a lot of um, a lot of time in the day if you're going to do that. So all up the trip, 176 days with 120 days of uh, on track, on trail, um, I think – she lucked it really well doing it in 2023. It was bad luck for the skiers and the snowboarders. It was probably one of the shortest snow seasons in <laughs> many, many years. And really by the long weekend in October, which when their season officially ends, there was pretty much almost no snow around at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, whereas some years you can get very late and quite heavy snow uh, and that would have changed the whole whole trip and maybe pushed her out another 10 or 20 days waiting for the snow to move along. The final thing I'd say through here is uh, she mentioned she had one two-week period without phone signal, uh, and that would have been in the remote areas, particularly up north, and it's just what you've got to go through and deal with. But that's why it's so important to have something like a satellite communication device of some sort, some brand, that you can actually get daily contact just to be able to send a message through at the end of the day saying, I've stopped for the day and that's it. Uh, Now, even then, I know I've had trips uh, when I did the Bibbleman where Jill didn't get a message from me and it was only because I was in the bottom of a a deep gully with a heavy rainstorm and, and big tree growth that it wasn't getting through. But had I have walked 200 metres further on, it was fine. The signal came back again. But that's the sort of thing you've, you've, your partner at home has got to be prepared for, okay, didn't receive a message today. Maybe after two days I'd be starting to worry. Uh, but you've got to have that discussion beforehand and say, I will send a message when I can. And sometimes it may not happen. Okay, so all up a very amazing trip and one that, as I said, I've got very much personal interest in this and I said to Hannah I might have to touch base with her in a few years' time if if I do something similar at some future stage. Yeah, I did notice that at the beginning that there was this not-so-subtle hint (laughs) that um, either I was going to be support crew or, you know, a partial uh, hiking buddy, Um, but, yes, I'm not going to do it end to end. I can tell you that now. All right, we hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, and as I said, if you go to the show notes for this episode, there will be links to Hannah's uh, Instagram page and also her fundraising page, just to be able to go and see uh, some of the images, uh, more, or more than the images we've gone through and published on the website. And if you can donate to the Black Dog Institute, they do some great work, important work to support people. So um, if it's within you know, your opportunity, then please consider that. Okay, that's all for me. Bye for now. And bye from me. As part of this trip, Hannah was also raising dog. Yeah, and if if you can... Um, Black dog. Black, black, black dog. And if you can, black dog. And if you can, the black dog 